welcome to Rising. We have another superb show for you today. Lee Fong will be joining us later to break down the tax loopholes that are apparently allowing former President Barack Obama to avoid paying capital gains. It's very interesting. Then we'll also discuss new updates in the Bud Light Dylan Mulvaney controversy, a favorite subject of Brianna's, I know. And uh, we'll also get into some new polling. Actually, we're doing that right now. Brianna, I think you're up. Yeah, thank you for that introduction, Robbie. Well, a new Economist YouGov poll finds that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has a higher favorability rating than many of the other 2024 presidential candidates, including President Biden and former President Trump. More polling from Quinnipiac shows President Biden ahead of the primary pack with 70% of Democratic voters supporting him. RFK Jr. earned 17% and Marion Williamson earned 8%. Meanwhile, podcaster Joe Rogan broke down what the Democratic Party establishment stands to lose in case Kennedy does become president. They have uh, like a coalition. They know what they're doing. They, they want to keep things exactly as they are now. They want to keep control of what they are now, and mm -hmm. especially the administration that's in currently. If some new person comes in, all their jobs are at stake. Yeah. Right? Everybody goes. Right. Some new guy, if, if RFK Jr. becomes the president, all mm -hmm. those people working for Biden are gone. Right? They know that. They're going to do their best to use all of their resources, all their connections with media. All, they're they're going to do their best to discredit him with hit pieces. And maybe even they even believe the things that are in those hit pieces. But at the end of the day, the only thing that changes it is if the media realizes that, go, that guy's going to win. And if that guy's going to win, you're going to have to deal with a whole new group of people mm -hmm. once they get in there. And so now it's time to play yeah. ball with the start, new people. Start kissing ass. Now it's time to play ball with the new people. Yeah. But and that's the, that they're trying to stop that from happening. So I do think that he has a point about how uh, much continuity there is between the establishment Democrat administrations and the staff that they all deploy. Uh, Kamala Harris's sister was Hillary Clinton's um, chief of staff. Uh, and there is an incentive for a lot of these people as they get circulated and passed around, obviously, Joe Biden is the VP. Obviously, there's all this continuity from the Obama era that adds a layer to the protectionism that already exists within the incumbency, right? There, there are people whose jobs are relying on the fact of Joe Biden continuing to be in office. Where there's still, I think, an open question is how much RFK Jr., as a Kennedy, is so divorced from that world. I believe uh, one, of, uh, one of his children or niece or something actually works in the Biden administration. It's something that a couple of conservatives I've seen criticize him for in the past. But most people, it's, it's really interesting the treatment that he's getting from the media. The, there's people on the kind of Bernie left, far left, who are very interested in him as an insurgent outsider candidate. There are other kind of independent, more right-leaning voters that are interested in him. And that interest seems to be absolving him as, of his Democratic priors. He says things when you listen to him in interviews about being a Kennedy and being a Democrat. He said he originally bought into Russiagate until very recently because of how much he just hated Donald Trump viscerally. And it's interesting that that doesn't seem to be affecting his perception with some of the unorthodox groups and more the right-leaning groups who normally would cringe at those right. kind of statements. I, I think it's important as 
as we discuss his, you know, outsider status, we should keep in mind that he is <laughs> he is a scion of like one of the most polit famous political dynasties yeah. of the previous century. Uh, now he is himself a gadfly within that right. tradition, um, and more so in the last couple years, given his uh, heterodox opinions on vaccines and Ukraine and some other issues. Um, I do all due respect to Joe Rogan. Think Joe Rogan's great. I. I take a little bit of, uh, I feel a little bit differently than he does, I guess, about like what the fallout would be for Kennedy taking over. I mean, like Trump, an outsider coming in and winning. So there would be, some people would just see the writing on the wall and they'd say, oh, well, you, you won. And they would join up just mm -hmm. like they did in the case of Trump. Some people would like exit the party or the coalition and join the media's condemnation or something. Uh, but anyway, but there's tremendous political turnover whenever a new—well, certainly when a new party inherits the White House, even kind of when a new person inherits the White sure. House, there's some turnover. And then also there's a tremendous number of, of government employees where there's not turnover at all, regardless of how sure. dramatic the change in power, because these are federal employees that, who are the non-political people. I mean, the, I mean, we're talking now about how Trump totally failed, did not at all— uh, wrangle, wrestle the, the what he calls the deep state, yeah. the prevent national law enforcement, the foreign policy establishment, the blob um, that we, we saw as as uh, as Trump gave way to Biden, enormous continuity in the policies of our health advisors, for instance. Um, there's a tremendous aspect of government that will say, no, we're, we're proceeding with business as usual, even if the most insurgent, anti-establishment, outsider candidate took over. It, it's the task of that person. The, the flaw, the problem with outsiders is that um, they don't, because they're outsiders and they don't understand the system, even though they want to take it down and they want to clean house and they want to get rid of those, some of those people, and I, which I absolutely support them doing, they don't have the technical knowledge of how Washington works in order to do sure. that. The people who do have the technical knowledge have no interest in shutting it down. Yeah. That's the problem. That, that was that's a bit problem. of a problem in Bernie world as well, just in terms of staffing during the campaign, that some of the people with the most expertise find his politics to be so... Right. antithetical to their own, that it is, it is harder to just staff on a basic level. Also, even if you liked Bernie, there's this concern that you'll never be able to work in this town again if you, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. fly in the face of, a, of the establishment, um, you know, kind of a, a hiring system. You know, if you, if you ever go against your former boss in that sort of a way, voting for a leftist, working for a leftist is seen as a real betrayal. But I want to ask you what you think about some of those polling numbers. Are you surprised at all by uh, RFK's favorability in light of how the mainstream media has been going in on him since before his announcement? I think this goes to show you that people just—people do not agree that the mainstream media is speaking for, again, affluent, uh, younger, college-educated, uh, liberal, Democratic, Trump-hating people who have made their whole personality um, supporting, you know, Ukraine flags in your bio and, and you know, get jabbed kind of thing, uh, something that RFK very much has spoken against. Both, you know, is not on brand for those two trends, very notably. And it, the fact that that's not hurting him more um, shows you how kind of false the mainstream media's manufactured consensus is. Yes. Right? I, look, we talk about ratings a lot when we're talking about MSNBC and CNN, and we do it in a comparative way. But the point, the, the, the kind of headline is, most Americans aren't watching any of these new shows with any kind of regularity. And so what they're getting, what they know of RFK Jr. is coming through some other source. RFK Jr. said recently in an interview um, 
you know, that he sees podcasts as a vehicle for him to boost his campaign the same way that television as a novel medium in the 1960s boosted his uh, uncle and how Twitter in some ways helped Trump in 2016 and he was able to use it to an effect that no presidential candidate had really tried to use it before. And it seems like that might be working. I don't know if it's because he's got this more direct access through podcasts, which also because of their longer form tend to allow for more substantive issues. Uh, they allow for a evolution of your thought and some feelings over the course of a discussion. Uh, we talked about that interview he had with Glenn Greenwald uh, yesterday, where by the end of the back and forth about Israel-Palestine, he seemed sort of open to the idea that maybe he needed to revise his opinions on that. And that might be what is causing there to be so much positivity for RFK Jr., despite the fact that every time you turn on cable media, it's someone talking about his family doesn't even support him, he's the anti-vaxxer, and all of the rhetoric that we are used to yeah. hearing now. Mastery of the newest kind of up-and-coming communications forum has been key for, right, ironically, for, for Kennedy, but for so many presidential candidates. Barack Obama's success, uh, Facebook, mm -hmm. a lot of it due to Facebook, the, the community group, you could, you could, like, groups of people supporting Obama, actually, the, like, the, the Facebook co-founder, Chris Hughes, left Facebook to join the Obama campaign mm. to do to do all sorts of colluding kind of behavior that you know, if a Republican had done it or in the, you know, the context of 10 years after would be seen as like election crime or something, you know, make everyone infuriated. But back then, because when it was Obama doing it, oh, that's cool. Look at how he expertly manipulated Facebook. Yeah. And it, just, a, just a different time. It's a Very different funny. time indeed. Uh, well, over on the other side of the aisle, the Republican primary continues to grow more crowded. The Republican mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, has tossed his hat into the race, formally announcing his campaign yesterday. Uh, a lot of candidates are splitting that non-Trump vote, uh, which to me sounds like 2016 all over again. Um, yeah. Again, I've said this before. Every person who gets in is just making it more likely that Trump will be the nominee. Um, I think that can be true. But of course, we saw the counterexample in 2020 where you can stay in the race at a crowded field, the way the Democratic field was, as long as you're responsive when Barack Obama picks up the phone and tells you to drop out and coalesce behind <laughs> the leading candidate. So, I mean, if Republicans have learned how to rig an election from <laughs> the Democrats in that sort of way, then there's no real danger here in using the primary as an opportunity to see who really does have the most stamina. Will the cream rise to the crop? Who can serve a role in perhaps dinging the front runner? even if it hurts themselves, but in a way that, you know, clears the field for the rest of the I, I will say all this, the indictment, all of this happening, I, I think it makes it so much more likely that it's going to be Trump. You think it's going to make it more likely? I do. Um, I don't think it's going to make it more likely to win the general election, but he is getting so much attention again. Mm -hmm. Like the news cycle for the past week it feels like this could be 2019 or 2018 or 2017 again because it's all Trump all the time, and, and the issue—it's just—it's just free engagement. Yeah. Like if you think of it in a social media attention economy, it's so much attention for Trump, and that's the important thing. And now, even for DeSantis to like overcome that with his right with, with the you know the anti-woke policies he's doing—it <laughs> it feels um, like it's not going to overcome. The just the the gravitational pull 
of Trump, given all the attention and the spotlight he has because of the news cycle, even a very negative and unfavorable news cycle. The rainbow displays in Target just don't seem that interesting when you have an indicted, twice indicted uh, former president. Yeah, well, we'll see more rising right after this. Former Marine Daniel Penny has been indicted on at least one count of manslaughter in connection to the death of Manhattan Street performer Jordan Neely on a New York subway car, Mediaite reports. Here's Daniel Penny speaking out earlier this week for the first time since Jordan Neely was placed in a chokehold and killed by him. East Village in Manhattan, so I take the subway multiple times a day. In this instance, I was coming from school. I got out of class around 2.15. And I took the J Street, I was at J Street Metro Tech, took the Uptown F train. Um, at Second Avenue, um, a man came on, stumbled on, he was, appeared to be on drugs. Um, the doors closed and he ripped his jacket off and, violent, and threw it at the people sitting down to my left. I was listening to music at the time um, and he was yelling, so I took my headphones out to hear what he was yelling. And the three main threats that he repeated over and over was, I'm gonna kill you. I'm prepared to go to jail for life, and I'm willing to die. You know, this, is a, this was a scary situation, and uh, Mr. Neely came on. He was, he was threatening. He's, he's a, I'm 6'2", and he was taller than me. So it was, and there's a common misconception that Marines don't get scared. We're actually taught uh, one of our core values is courage, and courage is not the absence of fear, but how you handle fear. Reporter Brian Yanis said two sources confirmed Penny was indicted yesterday afternoon. Here's what Yanis had to say on Fox News yesterday. We don't know exactly uh, if the exact charges. We do know that Penny was facing the second degree manslaughter charge and that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office believed that they had enough evidence, videos and witness testimony to indict him and to charge him on this second degree manslaughter charge, which in New York means uh, that they believe that Penny recklessly caused the death of Jordan Neely when he put him in that chokehold on that subway train on May 1st. Penny reportedly turned himself into the authorities on May 12th after activists called for his arrest. So it is a second-degree manslaughter charge, uh, which, as we heard there, has to do with when you recklessly cause the death of someone and should have known that your actions had a high likelihood of causing their death. Obviously, the fact that he was, um, you know, that a grand jury brought charges doesn't say anything necessarily. you know, the old line about grand juries would indict a ham sandwich. Um, it is very easy to do that. Um, where do you see the case going from here? I mean, it's very difficult. The fact that he's a Marine, I think, really militates against him, given that they are trained not to uh, implement those kinds of holds outside of uh, very specific circumstances. There have been so many people who are trained in either martial arts or who got martial arts training in the context of their service, who came out after um, uh, uh, Penny killed Neely 
explaining how, how reckless this was, how at the point where it seemed that they, everybody noted on camera that he had defecate, uh, that he had you know, soiled himself, that you should absolutely have released him. Um, and moreover, given that there's been so much testimony and no evidence that Neely made physical contact with anybody or was imminently going to make physical contact with anybody, being on drugs, throwing your jacket on the ground just simply isn't a death sentence. Doesn't, you know, you can't be judge, jury, and, and, and executioner for someone in a mental health crisis. Um, so as long as it remains the case that the only physical violence that happened on that train was at the hand of Daniel Penny, I think it's a very strong case that he did, in fact, use a move that is known to have deadly consequences on someone who had not assailed anybody and caused their death. Um, and so, you know, it, that's a uh, second-degree manslaughter has a, is punishable by up to 25 years in New York. And this is a, a tragic case, because I think it would be much better if we lived in a world where um, a civilian didn't take a vigilante moves upon himself, end up causing the death of another human being. Um, and now we have one dead person and one person who's likely to spend a, a, a many number, a, a, a large number of years in jail. I mean, I think it's going to come down to, like you said, the duration of the chokehold, the what people were saying, um, the bystanders, you know, whether um, for whether his judgment to keep doing that seemed reasonable given what other people were saying and all that. Um, I don't know that. I mean, he said there that he heard, and I think other people have confirmed the claim. You know, it's not just that. Daniel Penny, or that uh, Jordan Neely rather was having a mental health episode, but he, that he specifically threatened violence and he said he was willing to go to jail for it, and also had again had a history of following through, had been Which, in prison multiple times. Which of course he times. had no awareness of, and has uh, had also no awareness of whether or not he was on drugs, as he claimed um, at the beginning of that interview. So I mean, these everyone's been debating this on social media for some time, but you know. The reason people protested in New York, and I'm, I think it's a good thing that they did, because otherwise it's not clear that there would have been enough political pressure to actually bring an indictment. So many people in these situations um, who execute people via vigilante means aren't, in fact, uh, prosecuted because there is no public outcry. I mean, but now that we are, we are in the realm of the legal system, all of the kind of armed, uh, armchair quarterbacking falls to the side. There are legal standards for what you're allowed to do and whether or not you're allowed to put your hands on people. And the, the standard here is if you're acting recklessly and you're aware of your potentially fatal actions, and instead of stopping, you continue with your reckless acts and somebody dies, you're responsible for that death. So courage in the face of fear, all of the things are great, but I think a jury is going to have to contend with, or they're going to be asked, if, if I were the prosecutor, I would ask them, can you imagine courses of action that um, uh, Penny could have taken short of putting um, uh, Jordan Neely in a chokehold, going from zero to hero, someone who hadn't touched someone, putting them in a chokehold and choking them out to death? Not intervene. Should he have intervened? Is there a world where he just stood between Jordan Neely mm -hmm. and whoever he was talking to in a allegedly threatening manner? Is there a world where he said used his words and talked to him and said, "Can we de-escalate? What do you need? Can I get you food, etc.?" Choices were made to use a move which I frankly think is not a brave move. The braver move is the doing the thing that doesn't put all the risk on the other person and none of the risk on yourself, right? The, the things I'm describing are potentially risky, but coming up behind someone and choking someone to death is 
a move that you do when you want to not put, take on any personal risk and have absolutely no interest in or um, interest in protecting the life of the person I, that I you're know. putting your hands on. Again, when someone has, on a train, threatened to kill people, and also, again, I know it was unknown to um, Daniel Penny, but had a history of well, how is, how following is that through relevant? ultimately. Uh, I mean, how is that relevant to Daniel, uh, sorry, to I mean, Daniel Penny? His, his, his judgment in the moment that this person was a threat to the people around him was accurate. But no, it wasn't, because Daniel Penny, uh, sorry, uh, so we Jordan Neely. hit someone in the face for a third time. No, I think that he could have intervened and he could have done so without murdering another human being. I think the intervention was appropriate. The question, from, to my mind, is going to come down to, but did it, the duration of the chokehold become inappropriate given the threat well, no longer existing you know, and other people pointing out yeah. you are now, it's now tipping the balance to where this person is in serious trouble and is no longer a danger to the people around him. He's constrained. Yeah. Well, a jury of New Yorkers who take trains every day and hear all kinds of people saying all kinds of things but have never personally committed murder are going to comprise a jury of his peers. And they're going to have to weigh in on whether they think a young Marine who's trained in the art of killing, who comes up behind a homeless, mentally ill person and killed him by strangling him to death on a train, was justified in doing so. And so it's just up to the court system at this point. Right, but he didn't set out to kill him. I mean, that's not that's why it's debate, second degree. Right? That's yeah. why it's second degree murder. Yeah, okay. Well, we will continue to discuss this case, I'm sure, and we'll have more rising right after this. must have rolled Tuesday night at Fox News as a Chiron aired in the 8 o'clock hour referred to President Biden as, quote, a wannabe dictator. The network, which carried Donald Trump's post-arraignment speech live, showed a split screen of the former president and Biden, who was also speaking from the White House, and ran a graphic that read, quote, wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. Fox News has since addressed the incident, telling The Hill Wednesday that the Chiron was taken down immediately and was addressed. Meanwhile, the twice-indicted former president is cashing in on his arraignment. According to Politico, the Trump team raked in $2 million at its first campaign fundraiser just hours after Trump was arraigned in Miami. All right. So I think somebody went, went rogue here, put up an unapproved Chiron. You know, that happens on all networks. Fox admitted that that was not okay and took action against that. Uh, my question is, wannabe dictator? He's just a dictator. <laughs> I mean, look, this, I mean, so there's a, this part of this that's the story. You know, they say it was handled. Is the person being fired? Who is the person? There might be some follow-up there. I'm not especially invested in whatever happens, but it's probably a low-level employee there. But this broader question of the optics of Joe Biden appointing a special prosecutor to go after the leading candidate yeah. in the Republican race, it, it is bad. It's, it's giving, imprisoning Lula da Silva. It is, it is evocative of the things that America says sets it apart from other countries in the world, whether or not that's a reasonable right. interpretation of events. That's what America holds itself to a higher standard. And so many Democrats and people who are frustrated with Trump for legitimate reasons are pretending as though the fact that Trump uniquely obstructed evidence in ways that are distinguishable from the other people who also have document retention issues, Mike Pence, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden himself, it doesn't get to the heart of the issue, which is that the lesser 
crimes, if you will, the lesser violations of the Espionage Act or these document retention rules, these classified document right. rules, still. are still prosecutable. And the choice was made not to prosecute those important political figures the way that whistleblowers, journalists have been prosecuted for doing much less in the right. past. The little guys get prosecuted. The, the, are the elites, the political figures in both parties avoided this kind of scrutiny, and it took someone as clumsy as Trump yes. and, you know, and as reviled by the justice system and the national security world and the current administration, and they're, and they're going to do everything they can to get him. And yes, there's a lot of strength, as we've discussed, to the underlying um, case. It's, I think, very frustrating, even for people who really like Trump's policies, at least, that he put himself in this position and put them in this position right. of having to defend um, conduct that is actually really difficult to defend and feels very unnecessary because there was nothing at stake here and there was no—he didn't— this wasn't Trump falling on a sword for some major political victory. This, this wasn't— you know what, we're going to suffer in the ballot box, but we're going to get abortion banned. Like right. that kind of, you know, bargain you make when you're ultimately the goal is to achieve conservative policies, right. not to not to just not to just win. But you don't have to lose to not, in order to not serve any good political cause either, which seems what what happened here. But all that said, still, it will be hard to get around the optics of attempting to jail the main political rival of the president, a step we have never taken before, uh, well, a step there's that— Eugene Debs, a bit, right, but a major, right, the main, the right. main political and that rival was, and, and actually, and that was a sordid and, and scandalous and embarrassing, clear violation yes. of civil liberties, Woodrow Wilson jailing Eugene V. Debs for objecting, for, for protesting and circulating leaflets, opposing America's entry into World War I, a, a conflict now in hindsight that— I think that most people agree was at best quite unnecessary yeah. and caused massive death and devastation yeah. um, for very little and look, reason. Th this creeping kind of authoritarianism is everywhere. The Espionage Act has been something protested historically by liberals and civil libertarians right. up until the moment that it could maybe get Trump. Right. Now everybody seems to be turning a blind eye. There have been expansions of um, domestic terrorism laws that, as we discussed uh, on this show, have been applied to the Cop City, Stop Cop City protesters in Atlanta, where protesters who were handing out leaflets were arrested under domestic terrorism charges, basic First Amendment rights right. there, that there were three members who were raising bail funds for arrested protesters who had a SWAT team and military equipment sent to their house and broke down their you know, you know, were swatted and, are, and arrested as a consequence of, of simply raising bail funds and charged under these domestic terrorism laws. And now at the highest level in our government, you have a special prosecutor who has been assigned to investigate Trump specifically. And, I, you know, Alan Dershowitz made this very interesting point in a recent article he wrote earlier this week, that there's a world where you could apply, you could designate a special prosecutor to look at a category of crimes. To, to look into all of the document retention issues. But there is something inherently targeted about assigning a special prosecutor to one individual. Because as Alan Dershowitz said when he was on our show earlier this week, show me the man and I can show you the crime. And, and so, you know, Donald Trump spent so much of the last five, you know, four, four years or so casting doubt on the credibility of the 2020 election, wrongly. He said a lot of incorrect lies about the legitimacy of Biden's victory in 2020. But looking forward to 2024, 
you're basically setting him up for a narrative that I think is going to be destructive to democracy, where he's going to have a point about the legal system being weaponized to interfere with the democratic process because Joe Biden wasn't up to fighting him mano a mano. Right. Yeah, that's what we're that's what we're headed toward, and. Um, uh, I wanted to mention, um, you brought up the Cop City thing again, mm -hmm. you'll like this, Brianna, the Libertarian Party of Georgia has opposed, they, they put out a statement condemning the Cop City project. Oh, terrific. They're, so, they're doing better than, uh, than uh, Raphael Warnock and a lot yes. of Democratic leadership in that state. Um, also wanted to mention, there was a vote, just on, on, in terms of like political persecution kind of thing, there was a vote in the House to um, censor Adam Schiff mm. for his Russiagate stuff. Mm. Um, it failed. Uh, be, uh, Thomas Massey and some other Republicans joined Democrats in voting against it. And what Massey said is that, so it, this was going to, if they voted for this, it, it was also recommending like a $15 million fine mm. for uh, Adam Schiff. And Thomas Massey said he would vote to, you know, censor or condemn what Adam Schiff did with respect to Russiagate, but not, you can't, they can't. The House can't um, pass a motion that conflicts with the U.S. Constitution, and they can't. They can't find one specific person. Um, that would be crazy to do that. Right. So they opposed it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I do think this, this is an increasingly polarizing issue for people in a way that is not partisan at all. But so I like I like to see people. I yeah. like to see members of Congress like thinking through the consequences yeah. of just giving the government more broad power to punish, to punish. political enemies. Exactly. Like, let's be, let's think about how this gets, ends up getting used against you and violates principles. Yeah, well, progressive Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tore into Republican lawmakers who were saying Trump is a victim of a two-tiered justice system, calling it an insult to people of color. In an interview with The Independent, she said, quote, the idea that there is a two-tiered justice system and somehow the person on the short end of the stick is one of the most powerful and wealthy people that this country has known, I don't think so. Look, f first of all, <laughs> I just, I don't understand who this argument is for. The legions of people who are deeply invested in Trump uh, not being indicted, not being charged, but also are, are, are galvanized by the idea that people of color are being persecuted in this country as well. I mean, just from a political perspective, I don't know that this, this is the approach to take. I take her point that the justice system it has always been unfair and unequally applied, and that historically it is affluent people like Donald Trump who've been able to escape consequences, as he has done. If you look, the first time I think he was ever mentioned in the New York Times was because he was being sued for housing discrimination in some of his apartment buildings in New York. That being said, the way to make equality in this situation, where finally the law is being applied to a more affluent, powerful person like Donald Trump, is to apply it evenly to some of the other powerful people who have not right. been similarly charged. So the, the Biden um, documents case is pending. The, the, we don't know if he's going to be charged with anything. We know that Mike Pence is off the hook. That's a choice. You know, I, you know, it's, he's being treated very differently than Julian Assange. He's being treated very differently um, than the silver servant um, uh, whose last name is Fudd that I, I mentioned. Reality back in 2000. Edward Reality Snowden. Winner. You know, so we have civil servants taking documents home to work over the weekend who are given five and a half years in jail. And Mike Pence, who's a former president, the vice president of the United States, who has access to everything under the sun. Joe Biden, the former president, vice president of the United States, who has boxes of documents next to his car in the garage, and they are being let off the hook in a way that these other members aren't. And no amount of hand-wringing over Donald Trump, given all of the reasons people have that are legitimate to have issues with him, 
erases the fundamental reality that the law is being selectively applied here. Has anyone sold out to the mainstream as thoroughly as AOC? It, it, it seems like, I mean, I'm, I'm not a leftist, so I can't be disappointed in the same way that maybe you can, but it just seems like she's gone with, with little hesita hesitation or reservation, has gone totally in like an MSNBC or CNN direction. It, it speaks yeah. to, those are her people, those are her viewers, and everything she talks about um, or seems to care about speaks to those people. It's interesting, part of the reason I found her to be so appealing when she was running in 2018 was that she spoke very persuasively about the limits of identity politics, surprisingly. Uh, it's, it seems difficult to imagine now, but you should go back and watch this interview she did with Glenn Greenwald at The Intercept. Glenn and I were both at The Intercept at the time. And she, she, she talked about the ways that identity politics have been weaponized by Democrats in the past. She said that, of course, one's identity, where one comes from, what one's life is like, informs aspects of their life and their politics, but it's not the be-all, end-all, and there are ways that the Democratic Party has used identity politics as a shield to absolve itself of its greater responsibility on an economic front. She, she extemporaneously was saying stuff like this, and I don't know if it's just the years since where she's been in more of an echo chamber of like-minded people in the Democratic Party or in the um, kind of liberal as opposed to left media circles, increasing distance from DSA and the DSA's increasing shift toward the center. But there doesn't seem to be any more lefty moderating force on her the way there was when she was running as a, as a, um, as a, as a candidate mounted by folks like Kyle Kalinsky, an independent left media person, and even Cenk Uger, who I know that there's uh, critiques of TYT as a, a left organization that's also moved to the center. But that's where she came from. She came from independent internet journalism land. And I can't say that the changes that we can observe now that she's in the MSNBC media land and very rarely does any interviews with anybody in left media um, have been changes for the better. Well, we'd be happy to have her here if she ever shows any interest in that. More Rising right after this. On the campaign trail, Barack Obama decried the carried interest loophole for hedges and other private funds as folks who are doing very well paying lower rates than their secretaries. Now, though, however, the former president is using a nearly identical strategy to minimize his potential capital gains taxes to as low as 20 percent, almost half of what many ordinary working Americans pay. This is according to new reporting from investigative journalist Lee Fong, who joins us now to break it all down. Welcome back, Lee. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks yeah, for no, joining you're, us. You're, um, you're right in describing it as, uh, you know, Obama's you know, a, a defining part of his presidency was talking about the carrot interest loophole. You know, he talked about it uh, in many public addresses, uh, in many, you know, debates. It was in almost every single uh, budget request he sent to Congress in his eight years in office. Uh, and it was a defining part of how he got reelected. You know, he vilified Mitt Romney uh, Mitt, for Mitt, Mitt Romney's work as a private uh, equity executive. Uh, using this lo loophole to minimize his taxes. Um, but I obtained uh, some very non-public information showing Obama's uh, personal uh, tax and kind of investment strategies. And Obama's essentially doing the same thing. You know, he's uh, structuring some of these deals that he's now engaging in as a private citizen as a profit interest share, um, meaning that it, if the 
this, these businesses that he's, he's working with generate capital gains if there's a certain monetization event uh, in the future, uh, he will receive income that he can categorize as capital gains, paying only that 20% long-term uh, capital gains tax rate. That's very low. That's, uh, you know, it's like about half of what a lot of working Americans pay. It's exactly what Obama condemned in very clear terms and moralistic terms as president. Lee, you write in your piece that Obama pushed multiple times during his presidency to eliminate the carried interest loophole. Presumably there was some, you know, legislative uh, pushback to him being able to do so despite having a supermajority for some period of that time. Um, what are we really talking about here? Is the argument that because he wasn't able to push it through while he was president mean that he should tell his tax guy, you know, to give more money to the government? just because that would be the ethical thing to do and not take advantage of the rules as they are currently? I mean, ethically, I would love a world where we had a wealth tax. I would love a world where the taxes weren't structured this way. But do you think that he didn't sincerely push for the rule change when he was in office because he wanted to take advantage of this? Or is this just the consequence of saying, hey, do my taxes to your accountant, who, of course, is in their professional capacity going to have you keep as much money as you can under the current system? Well, you know, that, that's a very good question. You know, I, th I think their story raises a few points uh, along the, these regards. First, it's just Obama ran as a transformational character, someone who ran on hope and change, you know, as a political outsider who would break up the kind of back-scratching culture of Washington, you know, end the revolving door, you know, hold business leaders accountable, uh, really just take on the Wall Street and D.C. establishment. Um, in many ways, this story just simply shows that, you know, what he's engaging in here is legal. You know, nothing uh, illegal that's, you know, alleged in, in my reporting. Uh, it just simply shows that he's much more of a traditional politician. There are hundreds of politicians that come uh, to Washington promising one thing and then doing another um, after they leave office. Uh, this simply shows that he's kind of just a, a traditional politician. He's not that act he's not actually that much of an outsider. Um, he's, he's very, very normal. Um, and in terms of uh, his true motivations here, you know, I, I don't want to get into that. I, I don't know. Um, I think there was probably a very uh, intentional um, attempt to close this carried interest loophole. You know, the House of Representatives under his first term uh, closed that loophole and then it died in the, in the, in the Senate. Mm. Um, there's been some talk uh, of, of uh, actual legal authority that the Treasury Department had to close this loophole without Congress. You know, mm. they could have taken executive action um, to, you know, treat uh, business income from hedge funds and private equity as ordinary income and, you know, make them play by the same rules that banks and lawyers have to play play by when they, they use a very similar kind of fee arrangement. Um, why, why are these hedge funds uh, managers who are worth billions of dollars receiving hundreds of millions of dollars of income receiving this preferential tax treatment, there could have been executive action. The Treasury Department never moved on that. And I should note, uh, both of uh, Obama's Treasury secretaries, Tim Geithner and then Jack Lew, what did they do immediately after leaving the presidency? They both went to work for private equity funds that benefit uh, from this loophole. So, you know, this mm. larger revolving door issue, I think, you know, it, it just affects almost every administration. It's, it's how everyone in D.C. gets rich. They, they either engage in a certain public policy position or refuse to engage and then go to a, you know, private sector actor that benefits from their action or inaction while in office. And they, they become very, very wealthy. 
Now, you know, again, Obama is, is free to do anything he wants in his personal life, uh, of course. Um, but this is, I think, uh, fairly hypocritical as someone who really defined their presidency on this tax justice issue. He doesn't talk about it anymore. You know, he doesn't talk about issues of tax justice now that he, he's still giving speeches. He's still a political figure. And secretly, quietly in his own business deals, uh, he's engaging in the same types of activities he really strongly condemned as president. You know, you, you describe him as still politically active. I, he, he's definitely, um, I, he's not quite in the game, right? He's more muted. He, I mean, he gets, still gives speeches and travels and things, like he's making documentaries, that kind of thing. He's definitely not like a daily part of the news cycle, you know, weighing in on Trump and Biden and all that, um, which I, I guess that was, I guess that characterized George Bush's post-presidency and maybe Bill Clinton's post-presidency as well. Um, does it does it show you? So you describe him as, as this being some evidence that he's a you know normal political figure. He certainly doesn't have, I think, a zeal to pursue progressive causes still the way that it seemed like he might when he was running. Am I missing that? Well, look, I, he's not as active as he was you know years ago. I, I don't know exactly how active he is. I, I know the public information that, you know, he gave a big speech in the Bay Area at Stanford last year about, you know, the alleged ills of disinformation on social media. He's spoken at some gun control events in the last year. You know, he had his big inaugural democracy forum summit last uh, fall where, you know, he had some journalists and policymakers speak, you know, in association with the Obama Foundation. And the kind of focus there was, again, on, you know, I, I, some identity issues, hate, you know, disinformation, uh, voting rights. You know, this is all well and good, but, um, you know, for a lot of these uh, more wealthy liberals, uh, for politicians and activists that are funded by billionaires and, um, you know, kind of, kind of part of this more neoliberal mix, uh, they kind of hew towards uh, liberal issues that don't upset the economic status quo. And that, that's not to say that the issues that Obama's now talking about aren't, aren't important. You know, sure, uh, you can make that case, but they're not fundamentally changing the massive inequality we have in this country, the massive kind of uh, political power structure where the very rich, the very powerful corporations in this country have a disproportionate share of the economy that kind of set the game uh, in terms of how wealth and income are distributed. Uh, again, he's not talking about the very essential tax justice issues where Billionaires and millionaires, as he eloquently argued as president, are paying a lower tax rate than working class, middle class Americans. Um, it, you know, I, I still kind of I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument that he made as, as, as president talking about these tax issues. Um, I, I think they're very persuasive. Uh, it's just interesting that he seems to have abandoned them, uh, taken on these other liberal issues that don't have an economic component and in his private life is now benefiting from the same tax strategies or essentially the same. They're very similar. Uh, that he condemned. Yeah, it's fascinating. This is a trend that we've seen with a lot of faux populists across the aisle. I'm reminded of Donald Trump saying in 2016, I'm smart not to pay his taxes, and saying, I know our he said, I know our complex tax laws better than anyone who's ever run for president, and I am the one to fix them. But, you know, our former colleague, John Schwartz, wrote this piece back at The Intercept uh, back then, pointing out that it takes someone who's actually repentant to want to fix a system that they're benefiting from. And it seems that neither Donald Trump nor Barack Obama are 
are actually invested in doing anything other than, in Trump's case, doing a $1.7 trillion tax cut that overwhelmingly went to the wealthy, well, just using the idea of knowing that there's a fraudulent system to sell themselves to a public who really does want more systemic economic changes that benefit working class people. No, I think that's right, Bree. You know, I, I just, you know, I was very kind of focused on the 2008 election. That was my first big election where I, you know, started working as a professional um, in politics and media. I covered the 2016 election. They are so similar. You know, the, Obama's pitch to voters and, in 2008 and uh, Trump's pitch to voters in 2016, running as populist outsiders, looking at the tax code at our broken foreign policy at this culture of Washington that I think so many people despise, that people see as, as corrupt, and promising big, bold change. And uh, once they get into office, not really delivering on that change. I mean, it, it certainly animates voters because this is a, a message that resonates, that speaks to uh, the complacency in politics, the inherent kind of corruption and unfairness in our system. Uh, unfortunately, we, we, we haven't really seen the, the movement or the force or the kind of uh, wave of politicians necessary to enact the changes that are that are promised in these election campaigns. Mm. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. After two decades, Bud Light's reign as the top-selling beer in America is over. According to reports, Mexican beer Modelo Especial surpassed Bud Light in sales in May beating its competition with 8.4% of beer sales. Bud Light made up 7.3%. Bud Light's drop from the top comes after it sparked outrage from conservatives for partnering with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney, a decision the company's marketing VP, Alyssa Hirnscheid, made in an effort to revamp the brand. Here she is in her own words. This brand is in decline. It's been in decline for a really long time. And if we do not attract young drinkers to come and drink this brand, there will be no future for Bud Light. So I had this super clear mandate. It's like, we mm -hmm. need to evolve and elevate this incredibly iconic brand. And my, what I brought to that was a belief in, okay, what, is, what, do, what does evolve and elevate mean? It means inclusivity. It means shifting the tone. It means having a campaign that's truly inclusive and feels lighter and brighter and different and appeals to women and to men. Mm -hmm. And representation is at sort of the heart of evolution. You've got to see people who reflect you in the work. And we had this hangover. I mean, Bud Light had been kind of a brand of fratty, kind of out of touch humor. And it was really important <laughs> that we had another approach. You can Boy, tell, did she get it wrong. Yeah, I mean, you can tell how deep she is in the pocket of big LGBT with that a child's finger-painted rainbow behind yes, her. Yes, I saw that behind how, We how get it. We get how it. How dare she allow her child to paint rainbows and hang it on the wall uh, in her house? You know, just <laughs> keep it away from my beer, lady. Okay. Yeah, look, I, I think... I don't care at all. I, I don't actually think she got it wrong. I think that it's obviously... Yeah, obviously she wait did. a minute. Wait a minute. Let me explain what I mean by all that. All right. The, the fact is, every brand does have to figure out how to attract more business. If your brand has a very, very narrow... Uh, appeal among kind of fratty male consumers, and you want to make an effort to appeal to more people, I think that's reasonable and a good thing to do. The question I don't think is whether or not it is wrong to partner. And remember, let's take this, keep the scale of this in mind. There were probably 
a dozen, two dozen, five dozen partnerships happening simultaneously. What happened here wasn't organic. It was conservatives choosing to make a movement out of one trans influencer on TikTok, drinking a can of beer in a video and deciding that was a war on wokeness. And I think there is a because there's literally a presidential campaign, a major presidential campaign, and a governor of a major state in the United States of America who has chosen to make his singular issue wokeness and grooming and, and this pr presumption that being LGBT also makes you a child predator, it was mobilized against Bud Light, and there was a concerted attempt that was very open to make a lesson, to make an example of Bud Light. And that's what happened. So well, if people want to keep doing that, that's fine. Bug Light, Bud Light is a corporation, and I don't think that any trans people or liberal people are hurting from this. All of the conservatives that own Bud Light are hurting. All the corporatists who are voting for low, you know, low taxes for billionaires and stuff are hurting from this. So, you know, I don't think it's going to make anybody, you know, dislike trans people more. Um, it, it will cause brands like Bud Light, though, to continue to just appeal to the same old male, um, fratty sports-loving audiences they have in the past, and the rest of us can continue to, to not drink Bud Light. <laughs> you have to recognize that this is a pretty, to my mind, unprecedented example of a successful conservative boycott. Um, these things tend to like fall apart or not work out. I didn't re even really expect it would. They did inflict some actual serious pain on this brand and the parent company, at least in U.S. terms. Um, right, there was a little bit of switching from one beer to another beer that was owned by the same company. But now it looks like it actually has hurt the overall um, company. Um, look, I mean, I think conservatives would say we punished, we picked a target and we punished this brand for wading in to a toxic political fight over a cultural issue that the country is very split on and conservatives are very fired up about right now. The message is don't do that or you will be punished for it. Yeah, I'm looking at Anheuser-Busch's top political contributions um, over the 2022 cycle. They're overwhelmingly Republican, National Republican Senatorial Committee, National Republican Congressional Committee, yeah. Save Missouri Values. Tom Jr. came to their defense on that, remember? He <laughs> said, whoa, 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 guys, we can't, uh, you know, let's not get over our skis here. You know, this, this company gives to Republicans, so we can't, you know, we don't want to punish them to, and, you know, say what you will, but your, your Matt Walsh type people said, no way, Jose, we are, we are continuing to boycott yeah, this. Yeah, so if, and it if Republicans want to hurt other Republicans over a culture issue that's not going to affect any trans people who, uh, Dylan Mulvaney is probably the only trans woman who's ever had <laughs> Bud Light. I mean, it's just, it, the whole point of I mean, it was she didn't outreach. Even, she didn't even like it, right? In the, that was the point. Is that the true? Well, in the, in the actual ad, remember, she's like, I guess, this, like, she didn't <laughs> know what the sports event was. Like, she did not come across since, it, okay, I think this was a bit of an issue with it. It didn't seem very authentic. Sure. It didn't seem like she's a trans woman who also really is passionate about this beer. <laughs> who and, would be? Well, sure, but um, I mean the brand. Is I think strong. it was a bad fit for that reason. Yeah. The, anyway, the, the Bud Light brand is very specific and strong. I can't imagine. Not that I would like boycott Bud Light because it feels conservative or fratty or something, but like I just can't imagine that that would be my choice when I walk into a bar. If I wanted a cheap beer, mm -hmm. you know, culturally, Pabst Blue Ribbon, for instance, branded itself in like the early aughts as like a cheap hipster working class beer with kind of like left mm -hmm. valences because you could get, get it in a bar in Brooklyn with right. a shot on the side. Um, you know, uh, 
things like Corona or, or some of these kind of Mexican branded beers also have a different a different sort of vibe than a Bud right. Light. And so, I mean, what have you tried to get me as your spokesperson for Bud Light? Like, exactly. I don't know, I've had maybe two or, of them in my lifetime, trying to you know corner the market on the on the 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 nerd dem the 35 year old nerd demographic or something. I'm like, a yeah, D &D I love ad. Bud Light. We love this at my my D and D groups. Right. Like, it would have been insulting a little bit. And I think that was the the I, problem. I, I, I think so too. It was a bad. It was it was a bad right. branding choice, not because Dylan Mulvaney is trans, but because the brand itself it does have a problem with being so specific and mm -hmm. so entrenched. And to get out of that, I don't think you can just shove a can of beer in the hand of random people who are not your core demographic. It's going to take a little bit more artistry than what they chose to do. For sure. I'd be happy to endorse your wines, your tequilas. <laughs> if you want to send samples to my home or to the Rising Studio, we will not drink on set. Obviously, we would never do that. Also, but, you uh, need to change the can. Hmm? The, the Bud Light graphics are so specific with the identity of it, too. I think part of why Pabst, for instance, and some of the, like, um, um, for a second, it was like Dos Equis back in the Dos early odds. Like, Modelo, like, some of these brands, mm -hmm. they feel... Uh, more craft because of the label. That's what Paps had going for it. It just looked kind of vintagey in a way that was easy to adopt into a kind of hipstery, progressive, urban mindset. Even though it was like a very historically Midwestern. I mean, they're all Midwestern, but you know, Midwestern kind of beer. And that big corporate-y blue label with the white letters that looks like a football jersey. It literally looks like a Cowboys right. branded beer. Right. You're, you were never going to get past that. So that's some free branding advice for the Bud Light people. Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. To <laughs> that would have been the yeah, winning. Because women campaign. love to do whatever a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader does. I wake up every morning and think, gosh, how am I going to make myself more like a Dallas Cowboys? It makes the, the men in their lives happy. How about that? <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Well, let's, let's wrap this now. More rising <laughs> soon. Pop idol Lady Gaga is now the face of Pfizer's migraine treatment drug, Neurotech ODC. I know what it's like to perform through pain. If you're like me, one of the millions suffering from pain caused by migraine, Neurotech ODT may help. It's the only medication that can treat a migraine when it strikes and prevent migraine attacks. Treat and prevent all in one. Don't take if allergic to Nurtec. Allergic reactions can occur even days after using. Most common side effects were nausea, indigestion, and stomach pain. We're in this together. Talk to a doctor about Nurtec ODT. In an Instagram post about the partnership, Gaga wrote, ever since childhood, I've dealt with migraine pain. When I tried Nurtec ODT, Remingepant 75 milligrams for the first time. I'll never forget wishing I'd found it sooner. That's why I'm proud to partner with Nurtech ODT. The Gaga ad included safety information about the drug, which, according to Nick Lagunowicz, the global president of emerging markets at Pfizer, is already the number one prescribed migraine medicine in its class in the United States. But according to the New York Post, Pfizer reportedly recalled more than 4.2 million units of the Nurtec 75-milligram tablets on March 16, 2023, which includes expiration dates through June of 2026 because the packaging was not child-resistant and posed a poison risk. The partnership with Pfizer has provoked backlash from fans. One Instagram follower wrote, keep pushing big pharma, keep killing your fans. One Twitter user wrote, Gaga doing paid promo for Nurtec. 
The recession touches all, but other fans came to Gaga's defense with one tweeting, I actually think Lady Gaga partnering with Pfizer, Nurtec, ODT is a good thing. Migraines are a big issue affecting millions, and this collaboration has the potential to change the global landscape of at-home health care. So what do you think? Do you fault Lady Gaga for uh, doing this? I mean, she's, a, she's a person who is responsible for her choices, and it's not a choice that I would make. But I do think the issue is much bigger than just Lady Gaga. The question we should be asking is why the United States is one of a very, very small minority of countries. I think New Zealand uh, is one, and Canada has some limited allowance for direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising. But most countries make it illegal. You cannot, as a pharmaceutical company, market directly to customers. And it was that way in the United States as well, in large part, until the 90s, when the FDA loosened the restrictions on the ability, ability to market directly to consumers. Their thinking was, well, why do you need to market to consumers? You go to your doctor, you can market to the physician. They have a sense of what is medically indicated for your condition. And there was concern that exactly something like this would happen. Someone like Lady Gaga, who's enormously influential, one of the biggest pop stars in the world, who has legions of fans that she calls her little monsters and who do follow her lead in a way that is not tailored to what their medical needs are necessarily, would be influenced to perhaps take medication that was not otherwise medically indicated. Um, and so I think there is a, a bigger question here about why it is that we loosened those restrictions that the rest of the world uh, have really good public health concerns about. And should we be worried about the fact that before those regulations were lifted, the industry spent about $2 billion marketing to consumers. That was back in 1997. That number was $10 billion by 2016. Are we being led in a more healthful direction by having this direct-to-consumer marketing? Or are companies spending this much money convincing you to take their drugs for some reason other than they're looking out for your best health? Hmm. I guess we might disagree on this. I don't, I mean, I don't think the government should come between you and like it's your choice if you think this is good for you and you get I mean this is a prescription right you still got to get a doctor to prescribe it for you um, and if you're persuaded because Lady Gaga took it I mean that's on you and maybe I don't know maybe it's good for you maybe maybe it's a break breakthrough in the I know migraines do debilitate a lot of people and if it helps, it helps. That's on your choice. It's up to you to decide what is the right medical course of action for you. Obviously, you should consult a doctor, as you absolutely have to in this case. Um, but I don't. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna gonna tell consenting adults what they can put in their bodies, just in general, right? I mean, look. I I don't think. Um, I mean, some some like the problem with the the vaccines and all of that. For in terms of advertising, I mean, the, the, it was the government pushing it. That's what I object to. And, 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 for, and in some cases, tweaking policies so that you are encouraged or that you actually had to get it in order to keep your job or in order to comply with, in order to have your kid in school, me, all that. That's this, what I have the issue with. What, what is but out your, there, it's your choice. It should be your choice. Describe for me what your concerns are with government control. Like mm -hmm. when, you, when you push back against the size of government, the influence of government, what fundamentally is the problem, which I agree can be a real problem, with government exerting that much? Well, I don't want to answer my own question, but what, what, is, the, mm -hmm. what is your worry about government? They have the power of law. Like, they can ultimately, um, they can jail you. They, can, they, have, they have the monopoly on force. They can force you. You can't be, like, advertise. It's not mind control. 
They can't make you take. Now, if Pfizer advocates policies where you have to take this for some reason, I totally oppose those, and I don't think. Well, these corporations lobbied for a change in the law right. that would allow them to do this direct consumer marketing because they know it will positively affect their bottom line, with a disregard for whether or not it will positively affect the health. But I think they of ought to have the uh, private organizations ought to have the freedom to. Advertise to, I mean, engage in speech to say we would like you to buy our product. Right. They can't. They shouldn't be able to force you to. So, so my concern with government is that it can be captured, it can be weaponized in the ways that you described. It's incredibly powerful, and it can use that power for negative ends. The good thing about government, unlike private industry, is that at least superficially, on some level, there are democratic levers to control government. And the concern, the argument, in my view, should be figure out how to keep government from being captured by limiting the amount of political spending, by having shorter term limits, um, by having more transparency in government, and by in some way and sometimes shrinking certain agencies and growing others, and to have a dynamic process where we're constantly trying to root out what is going to be a constant effort by powerful interests to control government. Part of my argument also would be to get at the root of why some powerful inter interests have so much influence in government, and that is this money in government problem. So on one side, you want to limit the amount of corporate spending, but given that we have a legal system that is so permissible about outside expenditures and, and limitless, that you also have to get to the root of people having so much money that they are able to lobby and control government through these other means. That being said, I, as a lawyer, have been exposed to cases and some of the thinking that goes behind. I, I worked on a big pharmaceutical industry case, and I can't talk too much about it. But I observed legal minds that were great and mighty in other contexts. It was, this was an issue about um, lobbying to, to doctors, not to patients. But the, the, the argument that was being made, the case that was being brought, was that the pharmaceutical industry had misrepresented the efficacy of their product and when it should be prescribed, leading to mass overprescription and a billing of the government and millions and millions of dollars because it was reimbursing these things through Medicare and Medicaid, right? Yes. And so I thought that the legal mind that I was talking to, who was conservative, would say, this is government waste, this is a problem. But what I found was there was a credulity uh, an overconfidence in the medical profession and doctors who people thought, well, they know, they know, they know what's right. They wouldn't be swayed by advertising. They're doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and let the company spin. Sure. But you, you have to really wrap your mind around this idea. You really think that these companies are spending dozens of billions of dollars, $10 billion. Um, back in 2016, because they're not getting a return on their investment, because they're not influencing doctors. No, I'm sure they are. Doctor, I mean, I, I, wait, and this is the concept yeah. of doctors. They're not influencing doctors to prescribe in ways that they wouldn't have if they were just following their medical advice. Now, take that once removed from doctors onto patients. And so you can say laissez-faire, it's fine, but you're saying that every individual consumer has to make a, a choice with billions of dollars of marketing aimed at them right. and expect them just to be able to tough it out well, but somebody has to make back. a choice. I mean, if, if the choice is, I, I certainly think doctors will get it wrong sometimes, people will get it wrong sometimes, but somebody's making a choice. And also that the pharmaceutical companies can have very bad incentives to, yeah, to, to do everything you just described that sounds bad. Also, the government 
health officials can have bad judgment. The people, you know, saying, no, you this is not legal, this should be legal, those people can make bad choices, too. You're right to call—look, I agree with a lot of what you just said, and the, the issue where, yes, where if the pharmaceutical company can make money because they're lobbying doctors, because then it gets covered by Medicare, I mean— but that's also not like a totally laissez-faire system, right? Because that's the government subsidizing things that end up getting getting approved. No, so, this, so then the, we end the, up the having a fight this over. The specific case well, happened to be about be about the Medicare well, right, fraud, but, but the fundamental issue is the 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 the, the violation is the. Um, the uh, inaccurate, the the lying and the marketing. But here's the, the first fundamental place. issue from my standpoint. The like, I don't think I don't want the government to stop you from taking from any side. I, again, libertarian. You should be able to put whatever in your body you want to. But when something's approved, because the medical care is covered, that means it's going to be subsidized through insurance. So then there are some of these, like the they, the FDA approved recently a new um, drug for Alzheimer's, right? Mm -hmm. And there's and it's really expensive. It costs like hundreds it's of thousands of dollars exorbitantly expensive, and there's serious concerns over whether it actually works. I don't think it should be illegal to take this drug. I think if you have the money to pay for it and you want to take it and you think this is, I, you should be able yeah, to take it. I think it. that's a different issue, though, than this advertising issue. The, the, the idea that a multi-billion dollar industry should be allowed unfettered to make representations about the value of its drug to the public using popular iconic figures like Lady Gaga, who has a fandom so intense that they happily describe themselves as her little monsters, mm -hmm. weaponizing that parasocial relationship to sell pharmaceutical drugs that have side effects and could hurt the public, I think is one of those areas that us as members of a democracy can choose to vote for candidates who pass legislation to protect us against the onslaught of a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical but industry. But how do we know those people are actually protected? I mean, but do those people them. have our best interests? Because we elect them and can make these decisions democratically. And we have and done so in the past. Past, and that's what the standard quo, the status quo was. People. That was the status quo was until the people that now you're on the side of defending right now in the context of this sure. argument. The pharmaceutical industry lobbied them with money that was not our democratic money, that was not our legislative conceit, to change the rules to advantage. I, mean, I didn't democrat. Is several several levels removed from the democratic process for who controls the government health bureaucracy, right? The people that make these decisions, and then they're and, captured and by this very same people you're— how removed from the democratic process are, is the CEO of Pfizer? They're both very removed from the democratic no. process. No, Robbie, with five, there with is no democratic process between you and the CEO of Pfizer. You to buy these Zero. Things. All right. Well, I mean, there's like— And, you can, and if it's fraudulent, you should be able Google, to sue them. Google Edward Bernays in 100 years of history and the reporting of the influence of advertising. There's a reason why these things are in place. Advertising is deeply effective. It works. And so Advertisers you can sit here and say, I'm, I'm so strong, I can resist the lure of advertising, but we have a multi-billion, trillion-dollar economy that's based on our inability to actually resist. Companies that engage in fraud can and should be sued for it. I absolutely don't— want any laws that protect their liability for that kind of thing, I think that's uh, the, the, the correct remedy. They I'm not saying there should be no accountability. Protective. In the case that I was talking about, the pharmaceutical company won. Mm -hmm. On the basis, the, the judgment was, well, doctors know what to do. They can never be influenced by advertising, exactly what you're saying. They, they know the right thing to do. I didn't words in my mouth. I did say they can never be influenced by advertising. I'm saying that, but it's still your choice. No one is putting a gun to your head. The government shuts off the choice when no, it says no, look, you cannot have access no to this product. No one was putting a gun to those doctors' heads. They happened to take an all-expense right. paid trip to Hawaii and then make the decisions to prescribe this uh, st statin. But, you know, 
hey, it was their choice and it had nothing to do with anything. It just happened to be a really good drug. It lowered people's cholesterol. What can you do? I was reading an interesting um, case the other day, well, uh, quickly, a case the other day of, a, uh, of this new regulation on um, sesame seeds. Have you heard about this? No. So uh, there was a law that was passed, Congress passed like very bipartisan to require labeling of products that have sesame seeds in them because people are allergic to sesame mm -hmm. seeds. Um, the Wall Street Journal has this great report on the result of this being that um, companies are adding sesame seeds to their products at record uh, numbers because it is more costly to certify that your product does not have sesame seeds in it than it is to simply add that there are sesame seeds and put that disclosure. Isn't that funny? Well, why not? Why do they have to add sesame seeds just to put that there's sesame seeds so on that, the label? Because it's too expensive to, to disclaim that there's no, like, there's no dairy so and there's no... So can't just say may include sesame seeds? Because so many labels say may include traces of... The way the regulation is written to satisfy it. It sounds like their, people should change the regulation. I guess so. More rising right after this. and animal lovers alike have been left puzzled after orcas began intentionally capsizing boats off the coast of Gibraltar with one recent video showing a killer whale destroying a boat's rudder. According to an ABC News report, at least three sailors have reported having their boats capsized by the animals. GTOA, a group that researches orcas in the region, says reports of these incidents have more than tripled in the past two years. Scientists say the behavior likely began with just a handful of orcas and that other whales caught on through social learning. Now, as for why the orcas have picked up the habit is still unknown. One scientist told The Conversation that notions of, quote, collective self-defense in aquatic mammals are far from outlandish. So mm. one report pointed out that there was a killer whale known as White Gladys who got injured what? by a rudder. I didn't name Gladys. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not. This is not a Karen story. This is a White Gladys story. <laughs> Orcas have no race, Robbie. Jeez, we've got, yeah, got to do I, identity I, I politics all the time. Race, yes. They're black and white, yeah. like Michael Jackson would have wanted. Yeah. So White Gladys apparently was a whale that was injured by a rudder, and some people think that this is a defensive response where they decided to just get rid of all the, the rudders, and then we won't have this problem anymore. It's like her villain origin story or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in defense of White Gladys, White Gladys uh -huh. forever. So, you know, this has taken the internet by storm. Leftists are loving this. They're saying the whales are organizing. Stop. <laughs> Specifically because they keep going after yachts. I guess those are the boats that have rudders. I don't know. I'm sure there's an explanation for it other than class consciousness. But because they keep going after yachts, there is repeated kind of waves of uh, trending online where leftists are like, where are they going to go next? I stand with the orcas. Mm -hmm. There was a news report uh, yesterday that 30 orcas were spotted in Monterey Bay over the weekend with no clear explanation as to why they had gathered. I did a quick Google. Monterey home prices are the most among the most expensive in California and in the nation. It's also a military town, uh, and maybe the, the orcas are also deeply invested in cutting military spending and stopping U.S. imperialism. Wow. Who knows what the orcas Antifa are all about. orcas. Um, they, so they rarely harm humans. Uh, they're very emotionally yeah. intelligent beings. They're like, even though they're called killer whales, there's very little evidence that they've ever it's a media smear. It's a smear. They were smeared. <laughs> um, intelligent, playful creatures. Obviously, they, they can learn 
very well to do tricks and to do performances. That's why they're popular at SeaWorld or whatever, wherever that place is. Well, increasingly unpopular in captivity, especially after that 2013 documentary, Blackfish, which really highlighted how cruel it is to keep whales because of their immense uh, emotional intelligence and their social behavior living in these large pods and migrating over large expanses of territory in small tanks and oftentimes solo or with maybe one other orca. That was an explosive documentary that really, I think, reframed how many of us saw um, uh, orcas in captivity. That, in combination with Free Willy, for those people in my generational cohort, really puts us on the side of big whale. Are you you're like one of the free the animals from the zoo people? I am deeply skeptical of maybe for, maybe it's true for orcas, but for a lot of animals that like they'd rather be out in the wild where you can be torn apart by predators instead of in the nice zoo where you have a <laughs> nice <laughs> life and the people come to watch you. You know this from talking to animals. Your Dr. Doolittle now. They, they told you what? how much they prefer. The wild is the bad. I don't know. The Serengeti. Have you seen videos of like like the buffalo or the gazelle or whatever being torn Yeah, I grew by up in Kenya. I've that. seen it with my own eyes. Well, don't you think that it's a better life in the zoo? No. Okay, I absolutely. <laughs> if I get transformed by a, an evil gypsy woman, turns me into um, like a goat or something, put me in a zoo. I don't want to go into the wild. Okay, a goat, I can't. But... I'm not going to make it in the wild. Okay. Robbie, a goat is a domesticated animal. I, I think it's not all. All animals aren't the same. Some animals, tigers, lions, whatever, they have thousands of miles on which they normally range in the wild and social habits that require large numbers of them. It's also true that not all zoos are made equal. Some do really have a lot of space for animals and some animals don't need as much space. And, you know, all, you know, all of those things are here or there. There's also an argument for conservation efforts that people are more likely to give and want to protect these animals if they are able to see them personally in an urban environment. Most people can't get on a plane and fly to Tanzania or whatever. So I, I think those are all arguments to be made. I'm not saying close down all zoos tomorrow. But with some animals like orcas, I mean, the, the intelligence gap between an orca and a goat or a marmot or something else, mm -hmm. red panda that you would go see at a zoo. Also, the, there are things the like pandas. The red panda is the cream of the crop <laughs> in terms of zoo seeing but, um, animals. Sure, but the regular pandas, you know, the orca colored pandas, there's there's reasons to keep them in cat captivity because they're so stupid, they cannot say We have great pandas at the Washington DC yeah. Zoo. They're the most boring creatures. They never move. They just eat bamboo. And the sign, I remember the sign is very, it's like, yes, they mostly eat bamboo. They're not, they don't, their systems don't digest bamboo very well. And it'd be great if they preferred something else, but nope, they're just determined to eat bamboo. Yeah, Darwin makes, a, you know. Yeah. Not meant God, for, God makes not, mistakes. Right? <laughs> no, in the wild, they're clearly not meant they're, for survival. But here we yeah. are, keeping them alive. Yeah. And uh, they have us to thank for it. And we keep giving them their plates of bamboo. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there are arguments I just, the for animals zoos, can but, suffer but very guys. badly in the wild and in zoos where they're well taken care of. I think that's... As a, as, a, as a libertarian, yeah. I did not expect you to be making the case that, hey, you can have all of your freedoms li limited, <laughs> and that's okay as long as it's keeping you safe. The nanny state is great if you're an Impala. But I, 
I don't, but I'm, I'm a libertarian, but I don't want to live in like a hunter-gatherer society where like I have to roam the streets of the wild and hunt for my food. I live in a, a house, like a nicely curated environment for myself. There's no reason to think animals wouldn't seek the same thing. Robbie, you are telling on yourself so loudly right now because the anti-libertarian argument is always that the libertarian is, libertarianism is great for people who have wealth and privilege and can wall themselves up in a castle with a moat and don't have to go hunter-gathered, don't have to do anything out in the yeah. world and can, can homestead. And everybody else is Well, you don't have to be against civilization to be a libertarian. <laughs> okay. Well, let us know what you think about the orca of it all. If you've had any experiences, close encounters of a white gladiator. Maybe this kind. is the beginning of the end of the world, like in a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, <laughs> all the dolphins leave so long and thanks for all the fish. Yes, or Star Trek Four, where the future of this humanity rests on there being whales on Earth to communicate with an alien species. Oh, boy. More rising right after this. Shannon Phillips, a white woman and former regional manager at the Starbucks store, won a whopping $25 million after she was fired, allegedly because of her race. Phillips filed the lawsuit against the popular coffee shop chain after she was let go amid a 2018 arrest controversy of two black men at a Starbucks in Philadelphia's Rittenhouse Square neighborhood, one of the locations she oversaw. Fast forward to this week, a court determined Starbucks violated her civil rights by firing her as a consequence of the Rittenhouse Square episode because allegedly she was white and ordered them to pay up. Um, so this is uh, so this is the the incident ha in 2018 was um, two black men were at a Starbucks. They had, they had ordered. They were waiting for their orders. Hadn't gotten them yet. Asked you. One of them asked to use the restaurant. Uh, the restroom. I guess whoever the employee was there thought they were not paying customers. Asked them to leave. It got combative. The police were called and they were arrested. And that part of it appeared on video, mm -hmm. and that went viral. Um, and it was very, you know, it was like, look at racist Starbucks, et cetera. Starbucks um, reacted by closing 8,000 stores for a day to have, you know, uh, that sort of implicit bias training, which actually has a lot of, there's been a lot of criticism of it, kind of a DEI stuff that, like, does this particular training model actually even work or help mitigate bias is very unclear. Um, they also fired this regional manager, uh, this woman who's white, and sued. And then she filed a discrimination claim saying that they were clearly looking to scapegoat a specifically white person. So she filed a racism discrimination claim, and then she won. And it was apparently a jury issue. Uh, she won a $25 million verdict, which is huge. I think it goes to show um, how silly some of the DEI framework. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Specifically, she won because there were two managers, a black manager and a white manager, right. and the black manager wasn't fired and that she and she was. And I think there was a difficulty explaining why that choice had been made other than that they were trying to scapegoat specifically a white manager. Right. So this is a, I don't know that this is a whole DEI thing. It was a bad management decision. This is a labor issue, if anything where you can't fire people without cause to scapegoat them without making some argument about their actual right. behavior being inappropriate. Well, and you can't fire someone because of their race, period. Well, yes. Right. Yeah. They were looking, I mean, 
I want to be really clear. They didn't fire her because they think white people are lazy or they think white people are criminal or they think white people are stupid. No, no, because wait a minute, wait a minute. This is important to note because this become because of their race umbrella, it is not the same thing. It's bad and you can't fire and scapegoat someone just because they're white. But when when black people and other historically marginalized groups are making cases making the case and using anti-discrimination law to protect themselves against uh, employment decisions that are made on the basis of their race, it's because they are being discriminated against because their people believe that they have inherent characteristics, personality traits because of their race that make them less good employees than white people. And I just want to make it clear that that's a different thing. Nobody's alleging that this woman is genetically, inherently, intellectually, or culturally inferior because she's white. She was scapegoated because there was a big media event of, of racism that did in fact happen at Starbucks, where a manager did in fact call the police on two black people who were paying customers, and they were in fact arrested. But it wasn't just, it just wasn't that it was this woman's fault and it was unfair to fire her as a consequence. Right, she was treated as a, as a, we need a white person to punish for this, so that's why it rose to a Race to a you know race discrimination issue. Yeah, which is um, so. I, anyway, I just thought it was a kind of interesting story. It's a massive settlement number. Um, that was of uh, the uh, what the, the uh, compensatory damages or the punitive damages. I'm, I'm gonna look it up. I'm not sure which. Um, I saw it getting a lot of attention. I remember that incident happening um, because I think I, I wrote about the bias training they put. 8,000 stores was actually a lot of Starbucks stores mm -hmm. to be closed at one time. Um, uh, and there's a lot, Jesse Single has done a lot of um, reporting and talking to experts on that specific, imp the implicit bias training module and how there's actually much, there's some evidence, there's not a lot of evidence that it works to actually reduce people's biases. And I think there, I believe there's actually some evidence, if anything, it shows that it makes people more Mm. So what do you, what do you think happened in the biases? original case uh, of the two black men sitting Well, I mean, you said store. it was an obvious incident of racism. I mean, I don't—racism uh, would be— Oh, I don't remember saying that. But I'm asking you what, what you think happened. Why were the two police called on two paying customers sitting in a store waiting for their third business associate to show up? I guess the employees didn't know that they were paying customers. Why would they suspect that they weren't? Do, I are, the, are the police—have you ever sat in a Starbucks before ordering, waiting for someone, maybe on a— blind date or something, and have the cops ever been called on you? No, but I, I have been told I can't use the restroom, and I'm like, I, I'm ordering coffee. That's happened Did they, did they call the cops on you after you They did you not asked? call the cops on me, but I didn't, I didn't make a scene of it. So. They didn't make a scene either. That's well, not the fact pattern. I think the fact pattern is that they got combative. That they, I mean, they refused to, they refused to leave. <laughs> Yeah, they've sat back down at right. their table and continued waiting for their friend, that they had, their business partner, actually, that they were arranging to meet with. And then they called the police as a consequence. This yeah, calling the police. the police was not a good move in this case yeah, or so in the, many the cases. the question is— Often employees are not supposed to call the police, period. Um, I don't know if that's the policy at Starbucks. Yeah, so I don't know. I guess it's a big black box of why it is that these two guys— had the police called on them, was sitting at a Starbucks when that's not thing. That's not something that generally happens to people. Who? How will we ever know? I guess it's just a shame that some people, completely randomly, get the police called on them for engaging in the same kind of consumer activity um, that most Americans enjoy on a regular basis. Well, I mean, you're if you're asked to leave an establishment, you should leave. 
Yeah, no matter what, right? Yeah. We don't have a whole series of anti-discrimination laws well, that say that you can't selectively ask people to leave. I mean, people get asked, <laughs> people of all races get asked to leave establishments when they're being you know, this, this gets to the point of the issue. It's very difficult to prove anybody's motives. Sure. So if you're comfortable with that from a civil libertarian perspective, that we live in a world where two men can go and sit down at a Starbucks waiting for their third to show up and have the police called, and they were, in fact, arrested and taken to jail, handcuffed and taken yeah, to they jail. Yeah, they shouldn't have, well, it sounds like the wrongdoing was on those employees, right? Yeah. Not on the person who got. I would also argue on the police who maybe should have assessed the situation and, and tried to come up with mm -hmm. some cause before handcuffing people and taking them to jail other than the um, uh, statements the subjective statements of these uh, I mean, staffers. I have to review the video footage again to know exactly how it went down. I, based on the description of the facts, there's no reason for anyone to be arrested or go to jail or even the police to be involved, period, unless there was some kind of altercation. But, well, there was um, no, we know there was no altercation. Right, so it was wrong to take that course of action. I don't know, what, what, are, you, what are you trying to get me to... Say I don't know. Or it's just, or no one here. Like we live in a world where it's like, is there ever a case where anybody thinks that anything could maybe be racially motivated? Ever? Sure. Like I just want to know: is can it ever be the case? I don't sure. know what's in anybody's head. And one of the managers that called the police on this guy is black. But the thing about the implicit bias tests, which were interesting, was that everybody has implicit bias. I took those tests too. I also have an impl implicit anti-black bias. We live in America where we're all showed the same exact Do information you know? about black. Yes, I took the test and got the bias. Everyone takes the test and gets the bias. This is not some referendum on white people being evil or something. It's we live in a country that tells us messages about who we are interacting with on a daily basis. We meet women and presume things about their strength or their interests. We meet, you know, black people, Latino people make, make, make uh, presumptions about what they're interested in, what kind of music they like. We meet, you know, Asian Americans and make presumptions mm -hmm. about their interest in certain academic well, pursuits. And to sit here and lie and pretend that we don't all come with these stereotypes, I think it's delusional. Of course, we all have stereotypes and it affects our behavior in certain ways that aren't always productive. I think it's not wrong that, that what's unethical is not having the stereotype. It's not having that instinct. We all deal with that. But it's, it's it's engaging with what your first instinct might be and thinking, well, maybe I should reevaluate this situation because I know how stereotyping leads to bad outcomes and I don't want to be a part of that. Sure. I mean, there are common, there are people of different backgrounds, depending on what your background is, there are different cultural kinds of music and art. And we we talk a lot in the when the cameras aren't rolling about what food we like and, you know, the, what music we like. And that's, there are, there are, as stereotypes, not that they're just common to that culture. That doesn't mean you necessarily fit into that or you like the same things well, as all course. those people and I think that's by you, but here. it's okay to recognize some the cultural similarities that people of similar backgrounds can share in some cases, but oftentimes do not fit. Right, and so this share. is a question. That doesn't is make the, you biased, is, I don't think. When, when the, the managers, one of them was black, but when the managers saw those two men sitting at a table at a Starbucks, were they thinking, oh, these are two guys waiting for a business associate? Mm -hmm. Or were they thinking, these are vagrants who are not supposed to be here and aren't going to pay? And why, like, should they have and the responsibility, it was their responsibility as a manager at the Starbucks store, and I think that they should be trained on this. I don't care what acronym you put on it, 
Starbucks employees and employees everywhere should be trained to challenge their presumptions about who isn't who isn't a paying customer and who does and doesn't get to sit in their store to ensure that they don't jump to a conclusion that potentially because two men are black, that they're not supposed to be where they are and that they won't be legitimate patrons of a company. We'll leave it there. More rising right after this. As we discussed on this show, PhD doctor and public intellectual Cornel West has thrown his hat in the 2024 presidential contest as a third party candidate. Now, he announced with a relationship with the Movement for a People's Party and under some pressure, largely from the left, due to some controversy around MPP, he has recently announced that he is planning to seek the nomination of the Green Party as well. Not everybody is happy about his choice to run as an independent third party candidate, however, as opposed to running as a Democrat, as RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson have chosen to do. Recently in Jacobin Magazine, journalist Ben Burgess wrote an article making the case that Cornell West should, in fact, run on the Democratic Party ticket. I asked him specifically on an episode of my podcast, Bad Faith, that was released this morning as the decision-making process to run as a third-party candidate as opposed to a Democratic Party candidate where he could conceivably take advantage of the primary media cycle and get town halls and even potentially a debate. Let's hear what he had to say. What I like about the third-party strategy, whichever third party on the left you're talking about, is that it is a clear and unequivocal affirmation of the rot at the center of the Democratic Party mm. and the corporate wing suffocating the progressive wing. That's Brother Bernie and company or the squad and company. See, that they forever run up against a stone wall and end up being a kind of uh, 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 cover for Wall Street, Pentagon, dot, 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 dot. That's the kind of freedom, you see. Uh, so that even say my, my dear brother RFK Jr., you know, I work with him. I have wonderful, wonderful relations with him and so forth. But he can't tell the truth about the Israeli occupation. He can't tell the truth about the suffering of our precious Palestinian brothers and sisters. That, that, that's just one small example. You see, he's, he's locked into a certain discourse that has been normalized by the Democratic Party that refuses to come to terms with truth and just the truth of the West Bank and Gaza. All right, so what do you make of this strategy? Some people responded to that clip when I posted it this morning saying, I understand the kind of ethical claim that you're making here, but strategically, is it the most savvy thing to do to run as a Green Party candidate when you could potentially run as a Democrat and then do a dirty break and choose to run independent after the primary season is over. And what do you make of his argument that the reason that you fundamentally can't run as a Democrat is because you were forced to bend the knee on certain issues like Israel-Palestine, the way that many people believe RFK Jr. had to do after first coming out in support of Roger Waters and then deleting this tweet and flip-flopping on that support? Yeah, it sounded like he was effectively arguing that almost his um, his soul will be tainted by participating in the D Democratic Party process, which 
you know, maybe that's an existential argument is, is not a good, as you, as you pointed out, strategic argument. I, I would think if he, you know, if he wants to, again, if he wants to keep his soul intact, fine. If he wants to make, make a go of it, I think he'd really better be served by being in the democratic um, uh, process. Clearly, there is an appetite for non-Biden candidates. We've talked a lot about uh, Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. getting, I, I think, numbers that surprised a lot of folks yeah. for a while, continue to frustrate the mainstream media a little bit, who want to portray, you know, the very Biden media, who want to portray it as a united front and, and are, I think, are in great pains to explain why there is this significant minority of, uh, of poll respondents saying they're interested in someone other, other than Biden. Someone as kooky from the mainstream media's perspective as RFK Jr. They can't square this with the positions he's taken, particularly on Ukraine and vaccines. Um, so Cornell and Cornell West obviously has his own criticisms of an RFK Jr. from the, the Israeli issue and other things. So I think he'd be better. I mean, it, doesn't matter what I think, but he would could make more of a splash, and then and then sure, eventually run. There's is there time? Is what, right. You know what's so the, I don't know how this that's works. Such a good question. Can he get out and run as a Green Party that's candidate? That's such a good question, and that's why it was really important to me to interview someone who was an expert on the subject a couple of weeks ago, Richard Winger, who has for a long time, decades, written a blog about election rules all across the country, and is one of the most authoritative figures in this space. He came on Bad Faith, and he had a lengthy conversation with me about these so-called sore loser laws which are on the books in many states, which are designed to preclude people who have run in a primary race and lost from then running in a general election race. The problem is, very infrequently have these laws been applied in a uh, presidential election contest for the reason that if you are a, let's say, Joe Biden who won no, that's a bad example. Uh, Joe Biden, who lost in Nevada, lost to Bernie in 2020, to say, to have a rule that says you're not allowed to be on the ballot because you lost in a primary would preclude the one who won the actual election from being on the ballot in those states. Moreover, historically, and we have a lot of libertarians to thank for this precedent, candidates um, like Gary Johnson have been allowed yes. to run in states despite uh, I was going to bring that up. He ran, for, uh, he ran in the Republican contest for a little while in, uh, was that, 2016? 2012, 2012, it was 2012, um, and then dropped out of the Republican race and uh, and pursued the Libertarian nomination right. and got it. So these laws have been very selectively applied, and moreover, there was a big Harvard um, law review uh, study that was looking at the question of whether Donald Trump, it was concerned, it was establishment Republicans, I believe, concerned with whether or not Donald Trump could lose the primary and still run as a third party. And they said that that was unlikely and very difficult. Uh, Richard Winger has a lot of problems with their analysis, but one of the big takeaways is that while it is a tougher battle for a Republican to face because the sore loser law states where there is some precedent on the books of having some, not explicitly sore loser laws, but filing deadlines and stuff that precludes you from doing it, those are disproportionately Republican states. So if you are trying to count up electoral votes to see is there a path to victory for a, a left-leaning, more Democrat-leaning candidate. Um, being able to make it through, it's a much stronger case for them as well. What is the situation with yeah. the with the Green Party? Will they just anoint him as their candidate if he if he makes that declaration? Or obviously, Jill Stein has been the candidate of the Green Party in the past. In the past, um, and then Howie Hawkins the last cycle. So this is a really important question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, Cornell West has been doing a lot of interviews, but I have not heard him say. Elsewhere, what he has said in my interview uh, that was released today for free on Bad Faith, which is that the Green Party has a nomination process, 
And as an outsider, remember the posture of how he came to be a Green. He initially, initially launched with uh, MPP. There was a lot of pushback because there have been accusations of bad money management, accusations of Me Too with Nick Branna, the, the founder, and has been push to find an, an alternative party to run with. But the Green Party has its own nomination structure and people who have been in the Greens and working with the Greens for a long time. And I do think that there was some tension there within the party as to, you know, about a, a someone from the outside coming in and usurping the nomination process. So what Cornell West told me on my show was that he is going to have to work toward winning the Green Party nomination and frankly won't know if that will come to fruition until a year from now, at which point Hypothetically, it might not work. And does, is he just now solely running as an MPP candidate? Because he also hasn't said, I'm going to no longer be associated with M MPP at all, mm -hmm. just that he's doing kind of a dual ticketing situation. So this is far from resolved. Um, it's worth listening to his comments in detail and to get some more follow-up uh, on that. But I, I think I do agree with you strategically if you are really committed to the dirty break, which I think a lot of candidates aren't, but if you are really committed to the dirty break, it is hard to, it's hard to understand why you wouldn't want to take advantage of all of the focus that's coming on uh, Demo uh, the Democratic primary process right now. However, I will say that there's a different kind of focus that Cornell West is getting because of how enraged establishment Democrats are on the idea that he would be a spoiler candidate in the general election. People say that about Marianne and RFK Jr., but they're not spoilers around the primary. He really is running as a potential spoiler, and he's getting negative attention, but a certain kind of attention from Democrats as a consequence. I think the strength of Cornell West is that he does get media attention in general. He does a lot of appearances on cable news. Um, he, he's a name that people are familiar with, I think. Um, so he, you know, if he were, regardless of where he's running, he will be able to be on TV. He will be, he has a, he has a way of speaking that's very <laughs> charismatic and yeah. compelling and I think um, fun to listen to, even if you don't agree with him. Um, he has a, you know, a very, I mean, he's a very radical, progressive leftist person, um, but he has that uh, kind of, um, Almost religious sort of. Uh, He's a theologian. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, not almost religious, explicitly religious. Yeah. Uh, companionship, fellowship, calls everyone brother this, brother that, <laughs> um, where he's trying to make common cause with people who who very much disagree with him. That is uh, that is um, not not a, not a very common political kind of tact anymore. Yeah, maybe he can fulfill Biden's promise of healing the soul of this nation. We shall see. <laughs> More rising right after this. Project Blue Book was the name of the study of unidentified flying objects or UFOs by the United States Air Force from March 1952 to December 1969. A document from the U.S. Air Force Office of the Secretary wrote yesterday, since the termination of Project Blue Book, nothing has occurred that would support a resumption of UFO investigations by the Air Force. John Greenwald Jr., creator of the Black Vault, tweeted yesterday, No, this is not a quote from 1996. This was this morning in writing. This is also written on the Air Force website. Representative James Comer has said there will be oversight of whistleblower David Grush's claims that the government has possessed a UFO crash retrieval program. And Comer said there will be a hearing into the matter, News Nation's reports. Congressman Tim Burchett is one of the lawmakers that will lead these oversight hearings. And he had this to say on News Nation. First of all, how believable do you find this whistleblower, David Grush? I find him very believable, ma'am. He's, he's a veteran. He served our country. Doesn't mean a lot in Washington, D.C., apparently, but 
but in, but in East Tennessee, it means a whole heck of a lot about people that served our country. He's decorated. Um, I've known him for some while. We've been in contact for a good good while. I've talked to so many other people, ma'am, that are risking their careers, literally, or their reputations, pilots that have that have chased these craft that we've seen on video um, that have no heat signature that that defy our laws of physics. I just I don't know how much more we can have of this. The House Oversight Chairman Comer has said he would ask you to lead the hearing on this. Any word on what that might happen, when that might happen? Well, we're just trying to um, get confirmed folks here, know that they can come in and, and testify. That's really the only holdup, ma'am. I'm, I'm not, um, uh, Chairman Comer is very kind to me, and the Speaker, speaker uh, McCarthy has also agreed that we could have this hearing. Birch had also said they are going to try to have David Grush at a hearing to testify, but that he has to be careful about speaking on information that is classified. Well, and that's a very relevant holdup, you know, as we're having this <laughs> great narrative about Wouldn't want to get indicted under the espionage Well, no, yeah, that, that's an issue. And uh, it's been buried a little bit uh, in, the, in our commentary over the last few days, you know, as we grappled with, with what, what seemed to be um, Trump having actually national security concerning documents in his possession, but it is still the case that there is too much classification that the government works for the American people and should not generally be, generally be in the business of hiding relevant information from the American people. We can handle the truth. Yeah. Um, we deserve the truth. We are entitled to the truth legally, constitutionally, et cetera. So um, he should be absolutely if he's worried he can be prosecuted, like he should be shielded. That should be an agreement that he is shielded from prosecution and can describe whatever classified materials he's seen or can name the people who do have access to the classified materials so that we can question them. No more of this, I can't talk about that, that state secrets. We want to know what those state secrets are. If there's actually a cover-up, again, which I don't find particularly likely, <laughs> but if there's say, actually a cover-up. He's a believer now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Since yesterday, certainly not, uh, of non-human crafts and pilots that were recovered, then let's hear it. Yeah, I mean, so the to your point about our entitlement to the truth, I mean, the top the top of this story is about the fact that this guy, a Greenwald, who has been running this kind of UFO uh, website uh, news site investigating these kinds of things, sent a FOIA request um, to get more information two years ago. And the timing of this is so interesting. Um, the, the U.S. Air Force finally got back to him, but not with the documents requested in the FOIA request, but a pro forma PAT letter that it's basically a copy-paste job from um, 2016, at which point they uh, shut down this Project Blue Book, which was, you know, the, you know, tracking this mm -hmm. kind of information, saying, well, we haven't tracked it since then. Here's the information they shouldn't have known from back then, and so I'm not fulfilling this request. It took years to two years to respond to this FOIA request. Right. So John Greenwald Jr.'s point is that there are all these other uh, organizations, a whole litany of, like, acronyms that they, sh that were, they should have been responsive to, that they should have looked into those organizations and fulfilled these kinds of requests, but that they basically have brushed him off here. And the timing of after two years sending him this letter in the middle of this national conversation now about extraterrestrial life or UFOs is interesting. And, and according to some in the UFO community, damning. Yeah, I, the lack of transparency is very 
damn, I mean, it, it is not in itself <laughs> evidence of anything because the government is not transparent um, out of out of habit, even when there is nothing to keep secret. They they keep things secret out of again out of just habit and tradition, and they they want to be shielded from accountability in, just in case there's something. So that cannot be conclusive on its own. Um, however, sometimes they are. They know things that they aren't telling. They take way too long to tell us. We're having this whole. Um, dialogue right now. We had Michael Schellenberger on the show yesterday to uh, make some some pretty incendiary claims about information. I, I was seeing parallels here. Information that he has that based on conversations he's had with people in the government who claim to uh, effectively know that the lab leak is the origins of COVID, that the first three people to get sick were people in the lab, including the person working most closely on gain of function with with bat specimens, that's who got sick with COVID first. That all but confirms the lab leak as the beginning. And those three people couldn't have, if they'd all gotten it at the wet market, that's like right. beyond the statistical, right. any possibility. Now, we haven't seen those documents. We haven't seen that report. We didn't interview that person. We're relying on, uh, so it's secondhand. Um, but obviously, I generally trust Michael Schellenberger. I have him on as an expert a lot on the show because I think he's done great journalism. So uh, you know, also, will you know, this? Do you know what else is secondhand? When the Wall Street, uh, the, when the Washington Post reports that it talked to someone in the right. CIA that confirmed exactly. that it, yeah, are, exactly. it knew in advance and tried to stop right. the Nord Stream bombing. Right. So there's a Sources real selective. Say. Sources say exactly. Yeah, and there's been so much uh, in the right. The mainstream media relies on confidential. Sources. It's gotten so much worse over time. And they, the, the mainstream media, the, the Washington Post, the New York Times, all of those outlets, they rely on confidential sources in cases where I think it is certainly much less justified. Mm -hmm. The justification for doing a confidential source is because it's national security and they can be prosecuted and, and they, they, it's illegal for them to share this information. Mainstream people, I mean, they do, they do that too, but they also use confidential sources for someone just in the White House complaining about their boss or how things mm -hmm. are going. Mm -hmm. And like, well, everyone will do that if you grant them anonymity. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, a, 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 an official who works in the White House, but we, we protected their anonymity so that their job wouldn't be threatened. They say, you know, things are really, Tough, right? In the these are this was Biden was having a bad day, and he's or, or Trump or whoever it is. You know they're combative and they were growling at people or something. Well, okay, everyone, not me. I'm so happy in my job, but everyone <laughs> would would complain to some degree about their employers, their bosses, their coworkers if you give them total anonymity. And it's just not. It, it's become standard practice to allow any level of that to appear in. Um, in journalism, sure, and I'm yeah. against it. He says he's happy, but there has been some complaints about the lack of uh, snacks in the kitchen. <laughs> Where are my green M&Ms? <laughs> Only green M&Ms. you got to pick out all the others. I, I'm, I'm really a tyrant here. All right, Mariah um, Carey. <laughs> <laughs> well, tomorrow on Rising, uh, we don't know what we're talking about because it's not in the screen, but, oh, there it is. Jessica Burbank and Amber Athey will be back uh, with you taking over Rising uh, Fridays. We we are also doing, finally, that interview with RFK Jr., and that's going to get posted uh, probably sometime over the weekend. So you'll definitely want to be on the lookout for that. It would probably will break it up. It'll be over several yeah, okay. days. Be sure to subscribe to the channel so you don't miss it as yes. it's being released. And like the videos and subscribe so you never miss any content, generally speaking. And if you're one of those who prefers to listen while you're on the move, remember we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care. Bye-bye.